podcast. I'm John Cook. I'm a retired Baptist preacher with over 50 years in the ministry of teaching and preaching the King James Bible, God's Holy Word. The purpose of this podcast is to present the Word of God as being just as relevant today as it was in the day that it was written. Today I'm going to take you into my Sunday school class at the Faith Baptist Church in Riverside, California, where we are studying the book of Philippians. We're going to see in the introduction who wrote the book, who was he writing to, what are the key words, and what does it have to do with me today? So let's join the Sunday School class at the Faith Baptist Church in Riverside, California. We look at the book of Philippians. We know that the writer of the book is the Apostle Paul. In the very first verse of chapter 1, he says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So this book was written about the same time as the book of Galatians and Ephesians was written. People guess at when the book was written. The nearest guess anybody's come up with is around about AD 62. At that time, Paul was in prison in Rome. Acts 28 is where you find that. He is writing this to the Philippian church, to the believers, Paul is concerned about what they should be doing in the face of trials. And so we're going to look at it from what we can do in the face of tribulations that come our way. Tribulations and trials are natural to us as Christians because the Bible says, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We live in a generation of Christians that is what we call prosperity Christianity. Everything's going to go great as long as you just do what God wants you to do. You're not going to pay a price for that. Living for God doesn't cost you. But the reality of the Word of God is, if you're going to live for the Lord and live according to the Word of God, it will cost you. It will cost you friends. It may even cost you family. It may even cost a job. There are some real things going on here, not like what there was in that day. In that day, they just lock you up in the prison. They beat you because they wouldn't deny the Lord Jesus Christ. This book, then, is written to tell us how to react to all of those problems that come in our lives. The essential for us is to know that we're to have joy in our lives and rejoice in our lives. And we'll see that in a minute. But think about it from this standpoint. The Apostle Paul is writing this while in prison. He is telling these Christians how to react to tribulations, and he is reacting the same way, being in prison. I wonder if if we were locked up for what we believe, what we claim we believe. If we were put in a prison cell, what would be the effect on our lives? I mean, would it be... A time where we rejoiced because we got to suffer for the Lord? Or would it be a time where we complained and asked God why? Well, it's easy to figure that out because when difficulties come in your life now because of because of your Christian testimony, how do you react? Do you react saying, God, why? I'm serving you. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. 
I remember reading the story of Richard Rombrandt years ago, and he was talking about when the communists locked him up for, for preaching the gospel. He said when he was in that jail cell, he said here he was being beaten, spit upon, hated. And he said, and I asked God, why? I'm your preacher. I'm preaching your word. Why am I in this prison? He said that it seemed the answer came back from God. Well, I need preachers in prison too. And he just decided that he was going to preach in the prison. I was reading the story of, of the old time Baptists. They would be locked up in prison just because they wouldn't accept a license to preach. Many times those in, in those prisons, the only part or the only thing that where they had any light was up at the top, and there was like what we would call a skylight. Those preachers would preach while in the prison cell, and their people from their churches would gather around the prison where they could hear them. I wonder if the preacher got locked up, would the church get around the prison just to hear the preaching of the word of God? Or would we write them off? The sad thing is, is that many times we don't come to church to hear the preaching of the word of God. We come to church to feel good. We come to church to feel like we did, did what we could, what we're supposed to do for God, but that's all. And while the preaching is going on, we're checking our grocery list or checking the menu. That's ladies. Men don't do that. Men are sitting there thinking about, well, I got to go to work this time. I got to do this. I got this. I got something else. Or sports take over. A lot of things go on in our minds when we're in church, but are we listening for, for what God has to say to us? Do, do we want to truly hear what God has to say to us? And would we sacrifice for what God has to say to us? I know it's hard to, to know what you want, but then to hear what God wants, and they don't match. That's a hard thing to, to, to experience. I mean, as a missionary, I've experienced that. I remember one time, I had uh, two different preachers trying to get, trying to influence me as to where I should start the next church. So we visited some towns. We went over to, to British Columbia and went to one town and it really seemed like this where we were. It was where I wanted to go. But I had another preacher one. He said, listen, I want you to come at least visit this town. And it was the town of Nanaimo in British Columbia out on the island. I thought, okay. I'll go visit. He drove us down there. And I'll never forget, as we went to Nanaimo, we stopped at a gas station. And in that gas station, I said to him, I said, you just well turn around. I'm not coming here. I didn't want to go there. I mean, I could feel the oppression in that city. And just a few weeks later, just about the time we'd made plans to pack things up, it was like the Lord just told me, this is where I want you. And I didn't want to go there, but I went. I mean, you could say that I went kicking and screaming, but I went. And sometimes that's how we are in our Christian life when the Lord's leading us to do something, but it's not what's going to be fun. Sometimes we just don't want to do it. It's that simple. So we have to learn to face tribulation in our Christian life 
to face it with the knowledge that God is the one who's in charge of my Christian life, not me, not you. God's in charge of my Christian life. He's the one who makes the decision of what's right and what's wrong. I don't make that decision. For the church, I don't make that decision. I don't decide what's right and what's wrong. I let God decide it. When we let God decide it, this world's not going to appreciate us because it's what it does. It, it, it doesn't belong to the world. My life doesn't belong to the world. My life belongs to the Lord. This isn't mine. This is God. If God chooses to put me through tribulation, as my old grandfather would say, may that's you. My grandfather was French. Whatever. Now, Paul is writing to his converts at Philippi. Remember that these are the people that Paul led to Christ. Go to, to, go to the book of Acts chapter 16. We're not going to read all of it. In Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul is trying to go one direction, but God wants him to go another direction. In doing that, the apostle Paul has what we call the Macedonian vision. In verse 9 of Acts chapter 16, says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Here was God using a vision to tell Paul what he wanted him to do. In the very next verse, it says, And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And when Paul gets there, he finds that this place is a Roman military colony. There is no synagogue mentioned in this place. As a matter of fact, the place that you find him, or the place that he finds the first person that they preach to, is by the riverside. So Paul had a memorable calling to come to Philippi. Sometimes we want to go, but God doesn't want us to. Sometimes we want to do something, but God doesn't want us to. And why doesn't he? Because he's got someplace he does want us. He's got something he does want us doing. And all we have to do is learn something that I haven't learned yet, and that is patience to wait on God. Now, I've always found this, this strange because you notice that in verse 9 of Acts chapter 16, you notice that it says, There appeared to Paul in the night, there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. The first man you find mentioned in Macedonia that Paul reaches is in the jail cell. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 23, it says, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Paul had no conception when he went there that this was going to be the man that God would allow him to reach first in, in Philippi of Macedonia. And it was the jailer. But notice that in verse 24, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Do you notice what they did? They didn't do what we do. They didn't moan and groan. They sang praises to God, prayed and sang praises to God. Can you imagine being in stocks, having been beaten, and people hearing you praying and singing praises to God? What would they think you were? Well, they'd think you're crazy. That's what they think. And to this world, the Christian continuing to serve God faithfully 
in the face of tribulation and with joy and rejoicing is crazy in the eyes of the world. Then he says, there was a great earthquake, verse 26, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Now, if you went to a prison today and the doors all came open and everybody was taken from their chains, they couldn't get, they could escape right then. Do you think they'd still remain in the cell? It's not likely, but they did. Because you see, God didn't open the doors and take the chains off so they could escape. God opened the doors and took the chains off so he could reach one man. And it says the jailer in verse 27, the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cries with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He asked the one question that needed to be answered because it's the one question that when you go to witness to people, it's the one question that you have to answer. It's what they have to do to be saved. If you didn't have but one verse of scripture, could you tell somebody how to get saved? Right here, the apostle Paul says, and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. That's just one verse of scripture. And if that's all you knew and somebody said, what do I have to do to get saved? That's the answer. And that's the answer we have to give to the world. These were the people who Paul is writing to at Philippi. This jailer, the woman on the riverbank. These were the people who Paul wrote to. These were his converts. This church was one of Paul's favorites. You see, this church had seen Paul suffer. And so Paul is writing to them, telling them, it's going to cost you. Paul knew what he was talking about. He knew what it was to suffer for the Lord. And Paul was letting them know that it's going to cost you. If you're going to serve God, then get ready for trouble. You realize that in this church, you don't find anything said about Judaizers? Because people weren't there trying to bring the law on them. This is one church that, for all intents and purposes, was pretty straightforward. And pretty much, they had no real serious doctrinal issues. But the only issue they really had was personality problems. Look at chapter 4 of Philippians. And verse 2 says, I beseech Odias and beseech Syntyche, by the way, if I'm not pronouncing those right, you pronounce them however you want to. If I was Pastor Johnson, I would have said hard word, hard word. I sort of stumble over that they be of the same mind in the Lord. What was their problem? Those two fellows, they're having a dispute in the church. He says, get in the same mind with the Lord. So this church was a relatively straightforward church, straight doctrinal church. And this church needed to be told how to live. The key words, the key to this letter is the words, all rejoice and joy. Those are the words that are used constantly in this book. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. It says, what then? Not, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. What was he rejoicing about? He was rejoicing that the Lord was preached that this world was hearing the gospel. 
Then look at chapter 2 and verse 16. It says, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and I, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. The whole key is just get happy. Be happy that the gospel's being preached. Be glad that there are some who have chosen to give their lives just to preach the gospel. When we went to Canada, my wife was asked, don't they have churches like yours in the States? And she said, yes. They said, well, why don't you go back? So you say, did that bother you to be asked such a thing? Yeah. What'd you do? Just went on and did what God wanted us to do anyhow. That was start churches and train men to pastor. And now we've got men in Canada who are starting churches and training men to pastor. And that's just by the grace of God. So you rejoice that some are willing to pay the price to get the gospel out. Look at chapter 3 of of Philippians in verse 1. It says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, it is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Notice he just says rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. You say, I can't rejoice in my circumstances. Nobody told you to. I'm not told to rejoice in my circumstances. I'm told to rejoice in the Lord. In verse 3, he says of that same chapter, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And then if you look at chapter, um, let's see, chapter 4 and verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He repeats himself. Rejoice in the Lord. Oh, no, by the way, rejoice. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 of Philippians and verse 4, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. And verse 25 of that same chapter, he says, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you, with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. And then if you look at verse, uh, let's see, look at chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Fulfill ye my joy. And then in, let's see, chapter 2 and verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. And in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed and longed for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. If you went through this, this book and circled every time the word joy is used, every time the word rejoice is used, and notice that we're all supposed to be Rejoicing in the Lord, all joyful in the Lord. Jesus said, no man takes your joy. Pastor Johnson told me this one time. He said, "He said nobody can take your joy. You can only give it away. And the truth is, nobody can take what God's given you, but you can give it away. And too often in our lives, we find ourselves literally giving away what God has given us, the joy. Philippians is a practical book that is written in the face of persecution for the Savior. 
In chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, Grace be unto you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. From a practical standpoint, God wants us to live a life of joy in the face of persecution, in the face of tribulation. I wished in my life that I had learned to do that, but sometimes I don't find it so easy to be joyful. And you know what the difference is? I'm trying to rejoice in something God didn't tell me to rejoice in. While if I rejoice in what God tells me to rejoice in, I can always rejoice in the Lord. Except when I get mad at him. Of course, you never do that. I know you're more spiritual than I am. You never get upset with where the Lord's taking you. Or where he's taken you. Not where he's taking you, but where he has already taken you. As a good friend of mine, who's now at home with the Lord, used to say, now I've learned. And he'd say, no, that's not true. I haven't learned it. He said, because if I'd learned it, then God wouldn't have to keep teaching me. I think that's true in our lives. But I think the Lord wants us to learn that. He wants us to learn that when things aren't going right in our lives, there's a reason. If we're right in the big middle of God's will and things aren't doing what we think they should be doing, then God has a purpose in having us in that place. We in our lives need to learn when troubles, trials and persecutions come our way, well, God's going to take you through it. So the outline of this book is, according to one writer that I read, chapter one deals with joy and faith in the face of tribulation. When you're having trouble, it tells you how to have joy in the face of that trouble. And then chapter two deals with humility and obedience in the face of tribulation. Humility is something that we don't know we have. If you know that you're humble, you're not. Said, I wrote the book on being humble. No, you didn't. Because anybody who's humble doesn't even know they are, but the Lord knows. But he wants humility and he wants obedience. Chapter three deals with the cause and end of tribulation. What causes it and how is it all going to end? It helps in our lives if we understand that God knew when the tribulation started, how he's going to bring us to the end of that. It helps us if we understand that God knows the end from the beginning. I don't, but he does. And chapter four then deals with peace and confidence in the face of tribulation. If we can ever come to a point in our lives where we have real peace in the face of tribulation, Imagine how much more content we would be. You know, most of the time when tribulation comes in our lives, we're not looking to praise God for it. We're questioning God why it's there. You do a lot of research and reading about the old-time Christians and what they went through for the name of the Savior. And then you have to ask yourself, what have I got to complain about? Because if, if it's all him and not me, then I don't have anything to complain about. The servant doesn't say to the master, why did you do that? The servant 
just looks at the master and says, yes, sir. And when he doesn't agree with the master, he doesn't complain because he's not the master. And one of the things that we learn, or that we could learn if we would, real joy and contentment with the circumstances of our lives comes from realizing we ain't the boss. We're not in charge. I'll never forget. I guess it was about the third job I had after uh, my wife and I got married. First day I was on the job, I walked in and over the boss's desk was a sign and said, number one, the boss is always right. Number two, in the event the boss appears to be wrong, refer to rule number one. Christian, is Jesus the boss? Then your job and my job is to do what the boss says. So why should I rejoice in the face of tribulation? Because the boss says so. And he is the Lord. That's a hard lesson to learn. That's hard for us. Because we are independent-minded. And the trouble, Christian, is we're not independent from God. We are dependent upon God. Hey, this is John Cook again. Thank you for listening to my podcast on the book of Philippians. If you live in the Riverside, California area, I want to give you a personal invitation to visit the Faith Baptist Church, where our pastor, Nathan Cook, preaches the Word of God from the King James Bible. Now, before you go today, please leave us a comment or a prayer request or a question to let us know how we can help you. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and you will get the next lesson just as soon as it is released. Don't forget to join us now for our continuation on our study on the book of Philippians. Till then, God bless.